Welcome to the Light Plus podcast from Lighthouse. In this series, we'll be talking to the artists and curators behind Alternate Realities, an exhibition at Lighthouse for Brighton Digital Festival 2018, touring from Sheffield Dockfest. I'm Sian Haberlaley, and I'll be your host for this episode. Today, we hear from Dan Hett, creator of The Lost Levels, an interactive work that we presented as part of Alternate Realities. The recording was made at an artist talk Dan gave at Lighthouse just before the exhibition opened. Dan Hett is a BAFTA-winning artist and creative technologist and a participant on Future Everything's Cutting Edge Fault Lines programme. Dan builds things, things to challenge us, to experiment with, to play with. The piece exhibited for alternate realities, The Lost Levels, is an autobiographical piece of work. Born out of the loss of his brother Martin in the Manchester Arena bombing, it tracks Dan's experiences in the wake of the tragedy. I'm Joe Cutts, I'm the Alternate Realities Programme Producer for Shuffle Doc First. And before I hand over to Dan, who will, who will give us an introduction to, to his work, a few things that I'd love for us to talk about after. I'll ask a few questions and then I'll hand over to you. But some of the things to consider are placement of games and, and the world that they exist in. Um, how much narrative can be conveyed through the experience? Do you need to know how much of it in advance or is it purely to do with user journey and your experience of it. And finally, authenticity versus mass production in this world. But uh, for now, I'd like to hand you over to artist Dan Hutt. Hi, everybody. Oh. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Um, some big questions there. I don't think I'm ready. <laughs> uh, so my name is Dan Hutt. I am an artist and a games designer and a bunch of other stuff, depending on what I'm working on. Um, I'm primarily work in digital and games. Um, my initial background, annoyingly, this uh, projector doesn't like really light slides, so it kind of ducks out. My work is very vibrant. <laughs> um, so I work across a massive range of mediums. So I do a lot of um, work in theaters, work for um, uh, installations, that sort of thing. I do a lot of self-directed print work. Um, yeah, live performance, research, installations. That, like there's no, the, the core kind of part of my practice is that I'm, I'm sort of rooted in digital, but I tend to take fairly unconventional routes into using things like code in my practice. Um, so my, I cut my teeth um, at places like the BBC. So if any of you've got small children, you are welcome. Um, so I, I, did, I did win a BAFTA and didn't let it go to my head. Uh, and it, it was ages ago and I should stop using it really. Um, so after uh, working at Children's and a few agencies, I ended up at BBC R&D working on kind of future tech and that sort of thing. So I was sort of veering away from the beaten path even in work for other people. Um, a couple of years ago, I decided to leave that behind completely and I um, was selected as one of Future Everything's um, Fault Lines program, which is an artistic kind of career development thing. And this has given me sort of a springboard to confidently start working in digital arts and actually make it sustainable, which has been quite quite nice. So I sort of, in, in many ways, came out as an artist a couple of years ago and made this into my, my full deal, rather than moonlighting, which is not good. Um, so nowadays I work on sort of public installation stuff, so this was everything every time, um, recently done for the Great Exhibition of the North in Newcastle. Um, I also do a lot of data visualization that tends to not have numbers on it, so um, looking at 3D scans of objects from um, the archives of a museum in, in Newcastle and mapping climate data onto it. So I enjoy working with forms that are not necessarily numerical or useful but still express things around data. Um, I also work on fairly ludicrous things from time to time. Please don't tweet this. Um, I'm working for Daphne and Celeste. They are. They're back. <laughs> and they're, they're cool again, I promise. Uh, so I'm, I'm working on a Japanese language Daphne and Celeste video. Um, so I do work across 
fairly large spectrum of things. Um, with regard to tonight, I'm obviously going to talk about um, my recent games work, and um, I am going to try and frame the work with just a, an idea about what the games are based on in terms of the experience, um, which is slightly more serious than Daphne and Celeste. And it began on the 22nd of May last year when I wrote this tweet before going to bed. Um, so I'd seen rumours of something happening in Manchester, and I'd been in Manchester when the um, the riots had happened. Obviously, they'd happened in London, spread up to Manchester. And I'd seen a lot of this misinformation and kind of speculation just adding to things when it was all unfounded. So I sent this message and I went to bed and I thought nothing of it whatsoever. And then um, woke up the next morning to find out that the worst of the rumours had been true and there'd been a major terrorist incident and my phone was almost unusable because of hundreds of messages on every network and every text and loads of missed calls from random numbers. Um, the reason was um, that my younger brother Martin was reported missing. Um, I had no idea he was at the concert at all. Um, I'd, I'd also, it was an Ariana Grande concert. I'd never heard of her whatsoever. We were on different planets in that respect. Um, and ultimately, um, as I'm sure you can guess, they... Um, this whole thing played out to this conclusion, which was that he was one of the 22 people who had been killed. And he, I know a fair amount of what happened that night, but what I can say is um, he was seven feet away from the attacker and was killed instantly. So all of this happened very quickly. So the timestamp on this is the morning of the 24th. So this was all in the space of 24 hours. Now, it was really, really public loss and everything we did and everything that happened was instantly amplified and was in the media and on television. And um, even, you know, I, I hold the dubious honor of um, making a joke so bad about my brother that somebody wrote a Guardian article about it, which was great. Um, so, but every, every part of this played out very publicly. Um, even the funeral was televised, you know, so suddenly we were, because of the nature of, of what happened, we were thrust into this massive public spectacle. And the whole thing was underpinned by the internet. He, he had a very, very large internet presence. He was uh, like, he, he wouldn't come dine with me. Um, so, but he, he, because he existed so prominently on the internet, it became a very, very sort of modern loss. And I'm very connected to, te to technology. I have a reasonable following online. So the whole thing played out incredibly publicly. Now, the, my response as a person um, took quite a few forms. So I, I am now a fairly prominent anti-extremism campaigner, for example. But my response as an artist was different. They're very related, but my, my trajectory as a person changed completely from that instant. And like almost, almost inevitably, my response as an artist completely changed as well. So everything that I was working on kind of instantly became on hold. Um, now, initially, I didn't set out to make any creative work based on what had happened, but what I did do was I started writing. Now, it's, writing is something that I've always done. Um, so I kept not quite keeping diaries, but getting things out into printed form or written form, uh, particularly going through this kind of experience that was, was, as you'll see in the work, was not one big experience, but was actually hundreds of massive, uh, hundreds of tiny experiences that made a massive kind of hole. And, I was very, very paranoid, even within hours of this happening, that I'd forget things, and I, I just wrote and wrote and wrote. Um, and a lot of the writing um, wasn't necessarily documenting what I'd been through, but was also looking at the, quest the question of what if, what, what, what decisions that did I make that I could have made differently? What, you know, how, did, how could my path have changed? And this, a few people were asking about it, and I, I started to look at different ways of getting that kind of pathway into, a, into something that I could read for myself which ultimately became See You Later. Um, so the name of this project came from The Last Message. So that is an actual screen grab, that little gray box of The Last Message that I received from my brother on Facebook Messenger. Um, and so See You Later is a text-based interactive sort of short story, I suppose. 
the documents what I went through um, in a slightly abstracted way. So none of the work that I'm going to talk about, including the lost levels, mentions any specific names or locations. But what it does do is talk about the, these small individual experiences and pathways through a, a bigger experience. Um, there are loads and loads of ways through it. Oh, again, it's kind of dark, but you get the idea. So each of these sections represents a crossroads that I encountered in real life. And there is a pathway through this story that does represent what I did, but there are also hundreds of thousands of possible routes you can take through it that represent decisions that I didn't make. Now, in terms of video games, there are, as, a, as a medium, it, it worked perfectly in terms of me being able to represent parallel narratives and going, okay, here, is a, here are 10 things that I didn't do and one thing that I did, but all of them are equally valid in terms of what I'm thinking about and what I'm trying to get out. So Games works really well for this kind of thing. And it, it was, it's an 18,000 word project, which sounds like a lot, but actually because it's interactive narrative, you only ever see one route through it. So it's still only a few minutes of exploration really. Um, and there is one inevitable endpoint, so you can take different paths, but you do end up in the same place. The reason I like this kind of text, and, and it's, it's something that I think is quite unique to games, is that you get second-person language, um, and at risk of um, re-educating anybody who's studied English at all, um, the first-person written narrative, um, I walked into the place, I did something, I felt this thing. Um, you, you have somebody telling you their story quite directly. The more common one is the third-person narrative. So you've got somebody doing something, and then when you're reading about it, you get this kind of omnipresent kind of voice describing what that person is doing. So you've got sort of a disconnect. Whereas video games gives you this, or certainly um, interactive fiction, gives you this really, really unique viewpoint, which is me as a creator and as a storyteller pushing, that, pushing you into that narrative. And it's something that, that kind of thing doesn't make sense. Saying you, felt, you walk into this thing, you felt this thing, you need to make a decision about what to do next. It's something that's very, very unique to this sort of form. Uh, well, almost unique. Um, and it, in terms of me going, I want to show you what, what this was and what this felt like rather than telling you, um, is, I think is quite a powerful storytelling device. So I've worked on other small games. Um, so this was, if you look at the timestamp, this was the day, bef the day after we found out he was missing, but we had no idea that he died. And I had a chap from the Telegraph uh, post a note under my door saying, I'm sorry to bother you today, but I was hoping I could get a quick interview with you. And this was the first of, of more uh, intrusive journalism um, interactions, let's say, that I could count, um, which still continues now. I get messages most days saying, hey, can we have a quick chat? Um, and I ended up putting this into a, a small game called Sorry to Bother You. And again, games allowed me to, to, sh to sort of show people what this was like rather than telling them. So I produced a, a small game. Uh, it was just a web game, but it uses real data. So it's thousands, so I think it's about seven or 8,000 messages that I scraped from all of the messages that I'd received. Stripped out the names, but the actual text of the messages is completely accurate. And the way it works is you play as me, um, and you have to sift through the incoming messages. It's not quite finished, annoyingly, so there's no text in this thing, but it's almost done. Um, and what you have to do is um, you have to delete the messages that are actually thinly veiled journalist requests. So as a, as a user, you've got to kind of experience exactly what I experienced and just sift through this wealth of information. 99% of them are, are genuine sort of heartfelt messages, and then one or two will be very, very thinly veiled. Oh, I hope you're doing all right. By the way, um, I work for NBC in America. Can we have a quick chat? And, and some of them are quite aggressive. And what you get is is very much what I got, but in, in an interactive form. Um, so I was working on these bits and pieces, and then I started to gain a little bit of traction in terms of commissions. So now play this festival, which is at Somerset House every year. Um, it's just an experimental games festival. Reached out and said we'd like to commission you to produce a work. And the Lost Levels is what came out of this. Now, the Lost Levels is almost a reaction to the previous work, which was um, a big piece of interactive text. So what I, what I kind of said to myself was, okay, if we're talking about video games, can I 
can I get this kind of narrative out in what is traditionally thought of when, when if I ask you to think of video games, you think of pixels, you think of simple messaging, you think of like arcade cabinets and that sort of thing. And I'm really interested in interrogating people's expectations of the video game format. So I, I kind of set out with this commission to make the most video gamey video game I could make and try and explore this kind of thing in the same sort of way, but in a much more concise kind of way. And what came out with the, was the Lost Levels. So it's a custom-built cab, um, it's upstairs, and if anyone's not played it, it's a very, very fast experience. The whole thing takes place in about four minutes, and you're pushed through um, a series of about 14 games, each of which is maybe 10 to 15 seconds at the most. Now, a lot of these games um, look at some of the big elements to it, so things like um, racing through the traffic at 80 miles an hour in a, in a police car with sirens on as the traffic parts. Um, uh, you know, the, the coffin one in particular is something that I've, has resonated with people quite a lot. So I had an experience at the funeral. I'd never been to a funeral as an adult. I had no idea what happens at a funeral. I'm, you know, quite lucky in that respect. Um, and one of the things that stayed with me was the idea that carrying a coffin is actually really hard to do and it's a very heavy thing. And we're all different heights and keeping your feet in time with five other people who are different heights is actually really hard. And I can, sh I can sh demonstrate that to you more uh, or better in in five seconds of gameplay than I could in describing it laboriously to you. You can just try it and go, oh, wow, this is actually quite difficult. So it's that kind of thing. And it's, it's a very, very abstracted kind of experience. But the idea is that you, you have kind of almost no agency in it. You are forced through the experience in the same way that I was, I suppose. Um, so the cab in particular, one of the questions I get asked quite a lot is why an arcade cabinet in particular? And I guess the reason is that um, I... I, I want to catch people out. I'm, I'm really, really interested in interrogating what you expect to happen when you walk up to this arcade cabinet. And I feel like the people that I'm kind of wanting to speak to are not just people in galleries. Um, you know, for example, being able to put this in an actual arcade is something that we've got coming up in the next few months, hopefully, if I can make it stick. I like the idea of having this nestled in between shooting laser beams and killing aliens and that sort of thing. And somebody will walk up to this with preconceived notions of what a video game will give you, even a very simplistic one, um, and, and be surprised to, to find that you can use this format to tell a, quite an intense story, even in a very abstracted sort of form. Um, now, the feedback was really interesting. So I end, <laughs> ended up on the BBC Breakfast News talking about this thing. Annoyingly, I'd not finished spray painting it, so it's raw wood on the inside, which is really, really annoying. Um, nobody noticed, but it's, it haunts me. Um, now, um, so what was interesting was that I started to get really weird feedback from what I would describe as core gamers. So the arts crowd, in terms of um, people who aren't particularly games literate but are interested in interactive, kind of got it. But then I, I, I had an almost host, not, not hostile, but firm and surprised response from people who are typical games players to say, oh, well, this is, doesn't make any sense. I know what an arcade game is and this isn't it. And I, in a way, I, I kind of enjoy that. I like, I like sort of questioning what people expect from video games. And I think that a lot of, a lot of video game genres and, and approaches are very, very sort of stuck and they're very, um, they're very set in their ways, so to speak. Um, so it was quite interesting seeing the, res the difference in response. And I'm sure it's something we're going to talk about later. The difference in response from somebody in a gallery setting versus somebody in a, from a, a games literate audience, I suppose, has been quite different. Um, so they're, they're kind of responding to the same work but based on their sort of preconceived notions of, of what video games are and aren't. Um, I mean, in particular, the arcade cab format, I think, worked quite well because I'm, I'm really interested in work that doesn't have too many barriers to entry, I suppose. So, for example, um, a lot of VR work has 
has a barrier in the sense that it's very equipment dependent. You need to know how to how to move around and how to experience it. Whereas an up, down, left, right, and two buttons is very self-explanatory and people can just play it. And I'm, I'm really not into the idea of having to teach somebody how to interact with something before they can have the, the interaction or the benefit of the interaction, I suppose. So um, just to give you an idea of what the future of this thing looks like, um, so we're going to talk in, in more depth about Lost Levels in particular, um, but I've also got a bigger project on the go now called Closed Hands, um, and what I've been doing with the game so far, they've been quite autobiographical and very sort of introspective and quite personal, but also very quick. They're, they're intentionally designed. To, they, were just, they just came out and they were out and they're done. And whereas Closed Hands is a work of fiction and it aims to sort of pull the camera out away from me, because what had happened is I, I'd gone through this experience and had had a, had a very personal experience, but I've also suddenly become part of this tangled web of hundreds of people that have been, for, for the worst of reasons, united in, in, by the same experience. So I'm now working on a video game that explores much wider themes of radicalization, extremism, and, and the politics that surround it and that sort of thing. And again, I feel like games is going to allow me to, to place players into viewpoints that they might otherwise have not it's the way characters interact in the video game that I'm designing is is unique to video games. So the choices that you make are going to affect the the options of later players and that sort of thing. It's somewhere between interactive text and something more graphical. So you can look through people's emails while while you're playing as them and start to gain deeper levels of insight into their motivations that perhaps I couldn't express using linear media, for example. Um, so. Uh, Close Hands is, is definitely fictional. It's completely based on my um, my experiences, but is yeah, it's a lot lot bigger. So we we anticipate we're going to be working on this for probably the next year or so. Um, and it, I, I've got a lot to say about Close Hands, but I'm trying not to to sort of give too much away until we're completely sure. But I, I do think that um, video games has become a, a storytelling platform for me um, in a way that I didn't expect. And so this feels like the logical endpoint for explorations like Lost, Lost Levels. So this is kind of the trajectory has led to this kind of work. Um, so I've rattled through that as quickly as possible just to give you some context. And I think what we're going to do is throw it open into a conversation first between Joe and myself and then go to a Q&A. Thanks. Thank I just have a few questions here. I'm not uh, using my phone. Just <laughs> checking Twitter. It's fine. I am. Um, you're on it. Uh, no, I'm kidding. Um, thank you. That was brilliant. Thank you very much. Um, before I throw it out to the audience, I just have a few questions that touch across narrative, placement and setting, and formats, and the world that this kind of work exists in. But I think, um, just like any format, I guess, that has a quite a visual identity to it, do you feel that the uh, an audience member uh, needs to have the understanding of the subject matter of what it's about whilst playing uh, the game? Is, is that more personal and subject to you, or is that something that you, that you think that the audience warrants? So y yes and no, and by that I mean um, I've, I've had feedback from players on all of the games so far. Um, that have been a mixed bag between people that know me and know my story, of which obviously because I, I it was such, such a prominent press thing and the games themselves have been covered in the gaming press and that sort of thing. Um, so the, the feedback has been completely worlds apart between people who have who know the story already and have that context and then play the game knowing that they're about me. So none of the games mention specifics whatsoever and they have a certain kind of experience to say, okay, I'm now learning more about a person I already know about. 
But then what's more interesting to me are the people that have stumbled across this game at places like DocFest who have gone gone in with no preconceived notions about who I am. They have, they have no idea of context. But they, they still gain something meaningful in the sense that this game tells you about this massive thing has happened. It exposes these small stories within the experience and you don't you don't need that context in order to have a meaningful experience. And I think that if I'd, for example, written See You Later with names and locations and all this other stuff, I think you... You, you, you almost require knowledge or you require more introductory setting to explain who, who am I, who is Martin, who is any of this. Whereas actually the reasoning behind making these works was not to tell that specific story, but is to explore kind of what the human story was. And I think actually I'm almost not needed really as, a, as an identifiable person. So it's split into two camps, but both have been equally interesting to have feedback from. I think that brings me on to my next question because um at our festival, when we were looking for content, we often exhibit multidisciplinaries. Uh, so whether it's games, web docs, installations, VR, contemporary art, and theater as well. But to see them all under one umbrella is quite a unique thing. And as I mentioned before, to, to from our point of view, curatorial and production, to create that thread between project A and project B, so to speak, is a tough thing and can only be symbolized um, by virtue of, of uh, narrative, um, size and scale and, and, and now sensory components between projects. But from someone that may be in the minority or not, I don't know the wider number of people that, that, that you know, are game um, avid people throughout the world. I'm sort of contemporary art and film. Um, it's interesting to hear from your point of view, is there a, a, an ideal world that this work uh, fits in? Is it, is it festivals? Is it exhibitions? Is it uh, demo tech spaces? Is it collections? And the um, desired response that you get from people, because during uh, DocFest we encountered both broadcasters like Al Jazeera and gallery representatives like Carlos Ishikawa, as well as partners, members of the public, as members of the film industry seeing this work and, I, and sort of observing them across the room, all of their responses were completely different. And that's the beauty of this tour as well, and uh, working with our partners and the, and the host city with, I guess, wider than Lighthouses is, is BDF, is, is to work out what type of audiences are gonna come and view these projects and the social experiment that surrounds that. But to throw that to you, is there a desired world that, that the work fits in, or? Um, so, uh, I, I guess my answer, again, is kind of wishy-washy, but I I keep getting asked the uh, the, the so I guess the more focused question of is it, is this a piece of artwork or is is it a piece of digital art or is it a video game or is it something else? And the answer is yes, <laughs> depending on who you are and the context in which you're viewing the project. And I kind of um, I've I've designed these projects very very intentionally so they will work in in a multitude of contexts. And I don't need to distribute this on Steam or whatever the games platform is. Versus um, it doesn't have to just exist in a gallery space. I think all of those things are valid. Um, and again, it comes back to this idea of, well, if you approach this thing as somebody who is a, a very games literate games player, but perhaps doesn't um, interact with content that deals with radicalization or whatever else, um, you're going to have a meaningful, hopefully a meaningful experience in terms of encountering themes you didn't expect within the context of a technology you do, you do get intrinsically. Conversely, I also like the idea of an audience member who is perhaps not used to the kind of storytelling narratives and things found in video games, but is used to dealing with those themes in film or whatever other media. Um, and I think that that intersection of, of those two worlds is where I, I enjoy operating. And I think 
picking a side is not not necessarily required. Mm-hmm. And for me, I, I've I, like I said earlier, I, the, the feedback from those two completely disparate sort of, sort of sides of the fence really have been totally opposite uh, in terms of people going, oh, I didn't realize you were doing this with arcade games. It's almost ludicrous. Um, and on the other side, I'll, I'll have somebody going, okay, I've got a really good handle on what extremism in it looks like, but actually I, I had no idea that you could tell this kind of story in, in this kind of form. So yeah, the answer, the answer at the moment is um, this is straddling a few different camps and I'm, I'm, that's where I operate and I'm happy to be there at the moment. Brilliant. <laughs> um, this question sort of fits across format, but social experiments is, is relatively blunt. Is, do you feel <laughs> that uh, gaming to some degree or, or the, no, gaming I guess with, with, with a format of a cabinet becomes an isolated experience or does it become gaming an accessible experience? Because it's something that, not to draw a parallel to say VR, but one can say, and the only reason I do that is because we exhibit that stuff, not because mm. it warrants a parallel to VR. The only reason I'd say that is because um, VR can be quite the isolated experience and then often becomes an accessible experience given that more project creators these days are creating installations that surround that. But mm. given the visual identity of the cabinet and the on-screen aspects versus, say, the single user experience and what is synonymous with one being in an arcade when they're younger or otherwise, do you feel it's like, uh, accessible or isolated or a combination of both? Um. It's tricky, isn't it? So for me, accessibility is quite important in terms of, uh, I mean, I, I kind of touched on it earlier. I don't like the idea of somebody having to train themselves how to use a system in order to then interact with a piece of work. And things like, so uh, the arcade cab is about as simplistic as I can get in terms of people understanding what up and down, left and right, and any of the two buttons do. Um, similarly, closed hands and see you later are text-based. If you can, you, if you read, you can interact with this thing. And I'm, I'm less interested in making something that's so complex that somebody has a, a, a there's a barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. And the VR comparison does seem almost on the surface it seems odd, but actually in terms of that barrier and that sort of it's so tech-dependent that you you need to be able to firstly get into the tech and then immerse yourself. You know, so for example. I feel a bit weird in VR because I wear glasses and I'm always aware I'm in VR and for me that represents a barrier. Or, for example, I can't take a VR experience home because I don't have the right kit. Mm. Or my wife can't play certain games because she's bad with two analog sticks because she's just not learned how to use them both really well, which is takes practice. Mm. So the stuff that I do tends to be, it. I'm, I'm just disinterested in having that barrier to people. And in terms of them being shared experiences, mm. um, the arcade cab is quite interesting because that, that classic model of somebody playing a, an arcade machine and then everyone crowding around and then somebody jumping on, it kind of does lend itself to being slightly more of a spectator sport than somebody sitting at a screen in a gallery. You know, I could present this and I have, I have put this online. You can play the Lost Levels game online if you wish. Um, but the, the sort of spectacle of standing at an arcade cab and having this experience is something that you're not, you're not locked into yourself. You, you, you are surrounded by people. It is, a, it is a physical thing. It's designed to be around people. Um, so yeah, I, I kind of... I. Yeah, I mean, if I could kind of sum it up, it's it's that I think barriers are negative to video games. And I think if I can get something in front of people and they can instinctively interact with it mm. just by using the patterns and behaviors they've already got, then I've succeeded. Bro, thanks. Um, <laughs> thank you, everyone, for, for coming this evening. And I'd like to thank Lighthouse for hosting us and hosting this talk. But uh, more so, I'd like to thank Dan Hutt for joining us. Thank you. <laughs> thank you for listening. 
If you want to find out more about alternate realities, visit lighthouse.org.uk or chefdocfest.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes. It helps other people to find us. Thanks to our supporters. This series of Light Plus is supported by Brilliant Noise. Visit brilliantnoise.com for more information. Lighthouse is funded by Arts Council England.